0: This is the New Yorker Fiction Podcast from The New Yorker Magazine. I'm Deborah Treisman, Fiction Editor at The New Yorker. Each month, we invite a writer to choose a story from the magazine's archives to read and discuss. This month, we're going to hear Where I'm Calling From by Raymond Carver, which was published in The New Yorker in March of 1982.
1: We've only been in here a couple of days. We're not out of the woods yet. JP has these shakes and every so often a nerve. Maybe it isn't a nerve, but it's something begins to jerk in my shoulder.
0: The story was chosen by Sherman Alexie, who's the author of 19 books of fiction and poetry, including Blasphemy, New and Selected Stories, and the novel Flight. Hi, Sherman.
1: Hi, Deborah. How are you?
0: It's nice to see someone in person for once. So, Raymond Carver grew up in Washington State, not so far from where you grew up. Was that... Like a first point of affinity for you? Uh,
1: That was a big deal. Yeah, Uh, I first read him in college in my first fiction writing class, which would have been in 1988. And you look at his bio, and he lived in Yakima, which is really three hours away from my reservation, and right near the Yakima Indian Reservation where I had all sorts of friends. So he felt local. Mm -hmm. And then in reading the stories, uh, and it's about these broken people, alcoholics (laughs) and people losing their jobs and domestic violence and depression. And I so identified with the (laughs) characters. I thought, wow, dad, whoa, cousin, whoa, sister. And there's a lot of small town stuff too. And I mean, I grew up native on a reservation, but I also grew up in small white towns. I grew up among the blue collar. Mm -hmm. And I grew up among the white collar on their way back to blue collar and the blue collar (laughs) aspiring to be white collar. And then all the Indians who had no collars. (laughs) <laughs> so, uh, those sort of white guys I knew. I'd grown up with them, too.
0: Yeah. And you said that this story, where I'm calling from, was what set you on the path to being a fiction writer?
1: Uh, Raymond Carver was huge for me. Yeah. Uh, I'd started writing poems, and I was very influenced by my writing professor, Alex Quo, who wrote in very short sentences, very stark imagery. So, as soon as I started reading Carver, the way I was writing poetry and the way his fiction work seemed to echo and I thought, oh, this is how I can write fiction, too. I can write fiction like I write my poetry. <laughs> uh, and my poetry was already narrative, and then it was just easier to expand. But as I kept going, and I kept reading him, and this story especially, I hadn't read in a while. mm mm-hmm. Talk about prophecy. I hadn't yet spent time in rehab. So in reading it silently to myself and then reading it aloud, it was like, oh, my God, I know more about this than I did then. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, when I first read him, I was a full-blown alcoholic. I mean, blackouts and waking up naked on top of hills. So Mm -hmm. uh, I know these guys and and I know the women, too. Uh, That's one of the things the story does. It doesn't romanticize men or women. These are broken people in love with broken people. Mm-hmm. And no one's to blame and everybody's to blame.
0: Yeah. At the same time, they're all in a place where they're aspiring to be better.
1: The, the ambition, yes. Yes. And, I mean, you have to make the choice. You know, I'm ai am a 12-stepper. I've been recovering for a long time. But you have to make the choice. And they are.
0: Well, Carver, when he wrote this story, I think he had been— A teetotaler for about five years, at that point. So he may have been writing from experience, but he also had come out the other side, and perhaps that would account for some of the hopefulness of the story.
1: I I think so, and he'd fallen in love too. So I think uh, having the what ended up being the love of his life, and being sober, and coming out with these amazing stories, I think he was finding happiness, and it, it. doesn't seem like it when you're reading it, but this is a happy story. and It's, it's funny <laughs> to think about it, you know. It's a dysfunctional love song.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, we'll talk some more after the story. And now here's Sherman Alexi reading Where I'm Calling From by Raymond Carver.
1: Where I'm Calling From. We are on the front porch at Frank Martin's drying out facility. Like the rest of us at Frank Martin's, JP is first. And foremost, a drunk. But he's also a chimney sweep. It's his first time here, and he's scared. I've been here once before. What's to say? I'm back. JP's real name is Joe Penny, but he says I should call him JP. He's about 30 years old. Younger than I am. Not much younger, but a little He's telling me how he decided to go into his line of work and he wants to use his hands when he talks. But his hands tremble. I mean, they won't keep still. This has never happened to me before, he says. He means the trembling. I tell him I sympathize. I tell him the shakes will idle down. And they will. But it takes time. We've only been in here a couple of days. We're not out of the woods yet. JP has these shakes and every so often a nerve, maybe it isn't a nerve, but it's something, begins to jerk in my shoulder. Sometimes it's at the side of my neck. When this happens, my mouth dries up. It's an effort just to swallow then. I know something's about to happen, and I want to head it off. I want to hide from it. That's what I want to do. Just close my eyes and let it pass by. Let it take the next man. J.P. can wait a minute. I saw a seizure yesterday morning. A guy they call Tiny. A big fat guy. An electrician from Santa Rosa. They said he'd been in here for nearly two weeks, and that he was over the hump. He was going home in a day or two and would spend New Year's Eve with his wife in front of the TV. On New Year's Eve, Tiny planned to drink hot chocolate and eat cookies. Yesterday morning, he seemed just fine when he came down for breakfast. He was letting out with some quacking noises, showing some guy how he called ducks right down over his head. Blam, blam, said Tiny, picking off a couple. Tiny's hair was damp and was slicked back along the sides of his head. He'd just come out of the shower. He'd also nicked himself on the chin with his razor. But so what? Just about everybody at Frank Martin's had nicks on his face. It's something that happens. Tiny edged in at the head of the table and began telling about something that had happened on one of his drinking bouts. People at the table laughed and shook their heads as they shoveled up their eggs. Tiny would say something, grin, then look around the table for a sign of recognition. We'd all done things just as bad and crazy, so sure, that's why we laughed. Tiny had scrambled eggs on his plate and some biscuits and honey. I was at the table, but I wasn't hungry. I had some coffee in front of me. Suddenly, Tiny wasn't there anymore. He'd gone over in his chair with a big clatter. He was on his back on the floor with his eyes closed, his heels drumming the linoleum. People hollered for Frank Martin, but he was right there. A couple of guys got down on the floor beside Tiny. One of the guys put his fingers inside Tiny's mouth and tried to hold his tongue. Frank Martin yelled, everybody stand back. Then I noticed that the bunch of us were leaning over Tiny, just looking at him, not able to take our eyes off him. Give him air, Frank Martin said. Then he ran into the office and called the ambulance. Tiny is on board again today. Talk about bouncing back. This morning, Frank Martin drove the station wagon to the hospital to get him. Tiny got back too late for his eggs, but he took some coffee into the dining room and sat down at the table anyway. Somebody in the kitchen made toast for him, but Tiny didn't eat it. He just sat with his coffee and looked into his cup every now and then he moved his cup back and forth in front of him i'd like to ask him if he had any signal just before it happened i'd like to know if he felt his ticker skip a beat or else begin to race did his eyelid twitch but i'm not about to say anything he doesn't look like he's hot to talk about it anyway But what happened to Tiny is something I won't ever forget. Old Tiny flat on the floor, kicking his heels. So every time this little flitter starts up anywhere, I draw some breath and wait to find myself on my back, looking up, somebody's fingers in my mouth. In his chair on the front porch, J.P. keeps his hands in his lap, I smoke cigarettes and use an old coal bucket for an ashtray. I listen to J.P. ramble on. It's 11 o'clock in the morning, an hour and a half until lunch. Neither one of us is hungry. But just the same, we look forward to going inside and sitting down at the table. Maybe we'll get hungry. What's J.P. talking about anyway? He's saying how when he was 12 years old, he fell into a well in the vicinity of the farm he grew up on. It was a dry well, lucky for him, or unlucky, he says, looking around him and shaking his head. He says how late that afternoon, after he'd been located, his dad hauled him out with a rope. J.P. had wet his pants down there. He'd suffered all kinds of terror in that well, hollering for help, waiting and then hollering some more. He hollered himself hoarse before it was over. But he told me that being at the bottom of that well had made a lasting impression. He'd sat there and looked up at the well mouth. Way up at the top, he could see a circle of blue sky. Every once in a while, a white cloud passed over. A flock of birds flew across, and it seemed to J.P., their wing beats set up this odd commotion. He heard other things. He heard tiny rustlings above him in the well, which made him wonder if things might fall down into his hair. He was thinking of insects. He heard wind blow over the well mouth, and that sound made an impression on him, too. In short... Everything about his life was different for him at the bottom of that well. But nothing fell on him, and nothing closed off that little circle of blue. Then his dad came along with the rope, and it wasn't long before J.P. was back in the world he'd always lived in. Keep talking, J.P., then what, I say. When he was 18 or 19 years old and out of high school and had nothing whatsoever he wanted to do with his life, He went across town one afternoon to visit a friend. This friend lived in a house with a fireplace. J.P. and his friend sat around drinking beer and batting the breeze. They played some records. Then the doorbell rings. The friend goes to the door. This young woman chimney sweep is there with her cleaning things. She's wearing a top hat the sight of which knocked J.P. for a loop. She tells J.P.'s friend that she has an appointment to clean the fireplace. The friend lets her in and bows. The young woman doesn't pay him any mind. She spreads a blanket on the hearth and lays out her gear. She's wearing these black pants, black shirt, black shoes and socks. Of course, by now, she's taken her hat off. J.P. says... It nearly drove him nuts to look at her. She does the work, she cleans the chimney while JP and his friend play records and drink beer. But they watch her, and they watch what she does. Now and then, JP and his friend look at each other and grin, or else they wink. They raise their eyebrows when the upper half of the young woman disappears into the chimney. She was all right looking, too, JP said. She was about his age. When she'd finished her work, she rolled her things up in the blanket. From J.P.'s friend, she took a check that had been made out to her by his parents. And then she asks the friend if he wants to kiss her. It's supposed to bring good luck, she says. That does it for J.P. The friend rolls his eyes. He clowns some more. Then, probably blushing, he kisses her on the cheek. At this minute... J.P. made his mind up about something. He put his beard down. He got up from the sofa. He went over to the young woman as she was starting to go out the door. Me too, J.P. said to her. She swept her eyes over him. J.P. says he could feel his heart knocking. The young woman's name, it turns out, was Roxy. Sure, Roxy says. Why not? I've got some extra kisses. And she kissed him a good one, right on the lips and then turned to go. Like that, quick as a wink, J.P. followed her onto the porch. He held the porch screen door for her. He went down the steps with her and out to the drive, where she'd parked her panel truck. It was something that was out of his hands, Nothing else in the world counted for anything. He knew he'd met somebody who could set his legs a-tremble. He could feel her kiss still burning on his lips, etc. At this minute, J.P. couldn't begin to sort anything out. He was filled with sensations that were carrying him every which way. He opened the rear door of the panel truck for her. He helped her store her things inside. Thanks, she told him. Then he blurted it out that he'd like to see her again. Would she go to a movie with him sometime? He'd realize, too, what he wanted to do with his life. He wanted to do what she did. He wanted to be a chimney sweep. But he didn't tell her that then. J.P. says she put her hands on her hips and looked him over. Then she found a business card in the front seat of her truck. She gave it to him. She said, call this number after 10 o'clock tonight. The answering machine will be turned off then. We can talk. I have to go now. She put the top hat on and then took it huff. She looked at JP once more. She must have liked what she saw, because this time she grinned he told her there was a smudge near her mouth then she got into her truck tooted the horn and drove away then what i say don't stop now jp i was interested like i would have listened if he'd been going on about how one day he decided to start pitching horseshoes it rained last night The clouds are banked up against the hills across the valley. J.P. clears his throat and looks at the hills and the clouds. He pulls his chin. Then he goes on with what he was saying. Roxy starts going out with him on dates. And little by little, he talks her into letting him go along on jobs with her. But Roxy's in business with her father and brother, and they've got just the right amount of work. They don't need anybody else besides, who was this guy? J.P.? J.P. what? Watch out, they warned her. So she and J.P. saw some movies together. They went to a few dances. But mainly, the courtship revolved around their cleaning chimneys together. Before you know it, J.P. says, they're talking about tying the knot. And after a while, they do it. They get married. JP's new father in law takes him in as a full partner. In a year or so, Roxy has a kid. She's quit being a chimney sweep. At any rate, she's quit doing the work. Pretty soon, she has another kid. JP's in his mid 20s by now. He's buying a house. He says he was happy with his life. I was happy with the way things were going, he says. I had everything I wanted. I had a wife and kids I loved, and I was doing what I wanted to do with my life. But for some reason, who knows why we do what we do? His drinking picks up. For a long time, he drinks beer and beer only. Any kind of beer, it didn't matter. He says he could drink beer 24 hours a day. He drink beer at night while he watch TV, sure. Once in a while he drink hard stuff. But that was only if they went out on the town, which was not often, or else when they had company over. Then a time comes, he doesn't know why, when he makes the switch from beer to gin and tonic. And he'd have more gin and tonic after dinner, sitting in front of the TV. There was always a glass of gin and tonic in his hand. He says he actually liked the taste of it. He began stopping off after work for drinks before he went home to have more drinks. Then he began missing some dinners. He just wouldn't show up. Or else he'd show up, but he wouldn't want anything to eat. He'd filled up on snacks at the bar. Sometimes... He'd walk in the door and for no good reason throw his lunch pail across the living room. When Roxy yelled at him, he'd turn around and go out again. He moved his drinking time up to early afternoon while he was still supposed to be working. He tells me that he was starting off the morning with a couple of drinks. He'd have a belt of the stuff before he brushed his teeth. Then he'd have his coffee. He'd go to work with a thermos bottle of vodka in his lunch pail. JP quit talking. He just clams up. What's going on? I'm listening. It's helping me relax, for one thing. It's taking me away from my own situation. After a minute, I say, What the hell? Go on, JP. He's pulling his chin But pretty soon, he starts talking again. JP and Roxy are having some real fights now. I mean, fights. JP says that one time she hit him in the face with her fist and broke his nose. Look at this, he says, right here. He shows me a line across the bridge of his nose. That's a broken nose. He returned the favor. He dislocated her shoulder for her on that occasion. Another time, he split her lip. They beat on each other in front of the kids. Things got out of hand. But he kept on drinking. He couldn't stop, and nothing could make him stop. Not even with Roxy's dad and her brother threatening to beat hell out of him. They told Roxy she should take the kids and clear out. But Roxy said it was her problem. She got herself into it, and she'd solve it. Now, JP gets real quiet again. He hunches his shoulders and pulls down in his chair. He watches a car driving down the road between this place and the hills. I say, I want to hear the rest of this, JP. You better keep talking. I just don't know, he says. He shrugs. It's all right, I say, and I mean it's okay for him to tell it. Go on, J.P. One way she tried to solve things, J.P. says, was by finding a boyfriend. J.P. would like to know how she found the time with the house and kids. I look at him, and I'm surprised. He's a grown man. If you want to do that, I say, you find the time. You make the time. J.P. shakes his head. I guess so, he says. Anyway, he found out about it, about Roxy's boyfriend, and he went wild. He manages to get Roxy's wedding ring off her finger, and when he does, he cuts it into several pieces with a pair of wire cutters. Good, solid fun. They'd already gone a couple of rounds on this occasion. On his way to work the next morning, he gets arrested on a drunk driving charge. He loses his driver's license. He can't drive the truck to work anymore. Just as well, he says. He'd already fallen off a roof the week before and broken his thumb. It was just a matter of time until he broke his goddamn neck, he says. He was here at Frank Martin's to dry out and to figure out how to get his life back on track. But he wasn't here against his will any more than I was. We weren't locked up. We could leave any time we wanted. But a minimum stay of a week was recommended, and two weeks or a month was, as they put it, strongly advised. As I said, this is my second time at Frank Martin's. When I was trying to sign a check to pay in advance for a week's stay, Frank Martin said, the holidays are always a bad time. Maybe you should think of Sticking around a little longer this time? Think in terms of a couple of weeks? Can you do a couple of weeks? Think about it anyway. You don't have to decide anything right now, he said. He held his thumb on the check, and I signed my name. Then I walked my girlfriend to the front door and said goodbye. Goodbye, she said, and she lurched into the door jam and then onto the porch. It's late afternoon. It's raining. I go from the door to the window. I move the curtain and watch her drive away. She's in my car. She's drunk. But I'm drunk, too, and there's nothing I can do. I make it to a big old chair that's close to the radiator, and I sit down. Some guys look up from their TV. Then slowly, they shift back to what they were watching. I just sit there. Now and then, I look up at something that's happening on the screen. Later that afternoon, the front door banged open, and J.P. was brought in between these two big guys, his father-in-law and brother-in-law, I find out afterward. They stared J.P. across the room. The old guy signed him in and gave Frank Martin a check. Then these two guys helped J.P. upstairs. I guess they put him to bed. Pretty soon, the old guy and the other guy came downstairs and headed for the front door. They couldn't seem to get out of this place fast enough. It was as if they couldn't wait to wash their hands of all this. I didn't blame them. Hell no. I don't know how I'd act if I was in their shoes. A day and a half later, J.P. and I meet up on the front porch. We shake hands and comment on the weather. JP as a case of the shakes. We sit down and prop our feet on the railing. We lean back in our chairs as if we're just out there taking our ease, as if we might be getting ready to talk about our bird dogs. That's when JP gets going with his story. It's cold out, but not too cold. It's a little overcast. At one point, Frank Martin comes outside to finish his cigar. He has on a sweater buttoned up to his Adam's apple. Frank Martin is short and heavy-set. He has curly gray hair and a small head. His head is out of proportion with the rest of his body. Frank Martin puts the cigar in his mouth and stands with his arms crossed over his chest. He works that cigar in his mouth and looks across the valley. He stands there like a prize fighter. Like somebody who knows the score. JP gets real quiet again. I mean, he's hardly breathing. I toss my cigarette into the coal bucket and look hard at JP, who scoots farther down in his chair. JP pulls up his collar. What the hell's going on, I wonder? Frank Martin uncrosses his arms and takes a puff on the cigar. He lets the smoke carry out of his mouth. Then he raises his chin toward the hills and says, Jack London used to have a big place on the other side of this valley, right over there behind that green hill you're looking at. But alcohol killed him. Let that be a lesson. He was a better man than any of us, but he couldn't handle the stuff either. He looks at what's left of his cigar. It's gone out. He tosses it into the bucket. You guys want to read something while you're here? Read that book of his, The Call of the Wild. You know the one I'm talking about? We have it inside if you want to read something. It's about this animal that's half dog and half wolf. They don't write books like that anymore. But we could have helped Jack London if we'd been here in those days. And if he'd let us, if he'd asked for our help, hear me, like we can help you, if, if you ask for it, and if you listen. End of sermon. But don't forget it. If, he says again. Then he hitches his pants and tugs his sweater down. I'm going inside, he says. See you at lunch. I feel like a bug when he's around, J.P. says. He makes me feel like a bug, something you could step on. J.P. shakes his head. Then he says, Jack London, what a name. I wish I had me a name like that instead of the name I got. Frank Martin talked about that if the first time I was here. My wife brought me up here that time. That's when we were still living together, trying to make things work out. She brought me here and she stayed around for an hour or two, talking to Frank Martin in private. Then she left. The next morning, Frank Martin got me aside and said, We can help you if you want help and want to listen to what we say. But I didn't know if they could help me or not. Part of me wanted help, But there was another part. All said, it was a very big if. This time around, six months after my first date, was my girlfriend who drove me here. She was driving my car. She drove us through a rainstorm. We drank champagne all the way. We were both drunk when she pulled up in the drive. She intended to drop me off, turn around, and drive home again. She had things to do. One thing she had to do was go to work the next day. She was a secretary. She had an okay job with this electronic parts firm. She also had this mouthy teenage son. I wanted her to get a motel room in town, spend the night, and then drive home. I don't know if she got the room or not. I haven't heard from her since she led me up to the front steps the other day and walked me into Frank Martin's office and said, Guess who's here? But I wasn't mad at her. In the first place, she didn't have any idea what she was letting herself in for when she said I could stay with her after my wife asked me to leave. I felt sorry for her. The reason I felt sorry for her was that on the day before Christmas, her pap smear came back from the lab, and the news was not cheery. She'd have to go back to the doctor, and real soon. That kind of news was reason enough for both of us to start drinking. So what we did was get ourselves good and drunk, and on Christmas Day, we were still drunk. We had to go out to a restaurant to eat because she didn't feel anything like cooking. The two of us and her mouthy teenage son opened some presents, and then we went to the steakhouse near her apartment. I wasn't hungry. I had some soup and a hot roll. I drank a bottle of wine with the soup. She drank some wine, too. Then we started in on Bloody Mary's. For the next couple of days, I didn't eat anything except cashew nuts. But I drank a lot of bourbon. On the morning of the 28th, I said to her, Sugar, I think I better pack up. I better go back to Frank Martin's. I need to try that place on again. Hey, How about you driving me? She tried to explain to her son that she was going to be gone that afternoon and evening, and he'd have to get his own dinner. But right as we were going out the door, this goddamn kid screamed at us. He screamed, You call this love? To hell with you both. I hope you never come back. I hope you kill yourselves. Imagine this kid. Before we left town, I had her stop at the liquor store, where I bought us three bottles of champagne. Quality stuff. Piper. We stopped someplace else for plastic glasses. Then we picked up a bucket of fried chicken. We set out for Frank Martin's in this rainstorm drinking champagne and listening to music on the radio. She drove. I looked after the radio and poured champagne. We tried to make a little party out of it, but we were sad, too. There was that fried chicken but we didn't eat any of it. I guess she got home okay. I think I would have heard something if she hadn't made it back. But she hasn't called me. And I haven't called her. Maybe she's had some news about herself by now. Then again, maybe she hasn't heard anything. Maybe it was all a mistake. Maybe it was somebody else's test. But she has my car and I have things at her house. I know we'll be seeing each other again. They clang an old farm bell here to signal mealtime. JP and I get out of our chairs slowly, like old geezers, and we go inside. It's starting to get too cold on the porch anyway. We can see our breath drifting out from us as we talk. New Year's Eve morning, I try to call my wife. There's no answer. It's okay. But even if it wasn't okay, what am I supposed to do? The last time we talked on the phone a couple of weeks ago, we screamed at each other. I hung a few names on her. Wet brain, she said, and put the phone back where it belonged. But I wanted to talk to her now. Something had to be done about my stuff. I still had things at her house, too. One of the guys here is a guy who travels. He goes to Europe and the Middle East. That's what he says, anyway. Business, he says. He also says he has his drinking under control and doesn't have any idea why he's here at Frank Martin's. But he doesn't remember getting here. He laughs about it, about his not remembering. Anyone can have a blackout, he says. That doesn't prove a thing. He's not a drunk, he tells us this, and we listen. That's a serious charge to make, he says. That kind of talk can ruin a good man's prospects. He further says that if it only stick to whiskey and water, no ice, he'd never get intoxicated, his word, and have these blackouts. It's the ice they put into your drink that does it. Who do you know in Egypt, he asks me. I can use a few names over there. For New Year's Eve dinner, Frank Martin serves steak and baked potato. A green salad. My appetite's coming back. I eat the salad. I clean up everything on my plate and I could eat more. I look over at Tiny's plate. Hell, he's hardly touched anything. His steak is just sitting there getting cold. Tiny is not the same old Tiny. The poor bastard had planned to be at home tonight. He'd planned to be in his robe and slippers in front of the TV holding hands with his wife. Now, he's afraid to leave. I can understand. One seizure means you're a candidate for another. Tiny hasn't told any more nutty stories on himself since it happened. He stayed quiet and kept to himself. Pretty soon, I ask him if I can have his steak, and he pushes his plate over to me. They let us keep the TV on until the New Year has been rung in at Times Square. Some of us are still up, sitting around the TV, watching the crowds on the screen when Frank Martin comes in to show us his cake. He brings it around and shows it to each of us. I know he didn't make it. It's a goddamn bakery cake. But still, it's a cake. It's a big white cake. Across the top of the cake, there's writing in pink letters. The writing says, Happy New Year, one day at a time. I don't want any stupid cake, says the guy who goes to Europe and the Middle East. Where's the champagne, he says, and laughs. We all go into the dining room. Frank Martin cuts the cake. I sit next to J.P., J.P. eats two pieces and drinks a Coke. I eat a piece and wrap another piece in a napkin, thinking of later. J.P. lights a cigarette. His hands are steady now. And he tells me his wife is coming to visit him in the morning, the first day of the new year. That's great, I say. I nod. I lick the frosting off my finger. That's good news, J.P., I'll introduce you, he says. I look forward to it, I say. We say good night. We say happy new year. Sleep well. I use a napkin on my fingers. We shake hands. I go to the payphone once more, put in a dime, and call my wife collect. But nobody answers this time either. I think about calling my girlfriend and dialing her number when I realize I don't want to talk to her. She's probably at home watching the same thing on TV that I've been watching. But maybe she isn't. Maybe she's out. Why shouldn't she be? Anyway, I don't want to talk to her. I hope she's okay. But if she has something wrong with her, I don't want to know about it. Not now. In any case, I won't talk to her tonight. After breakfast, J.P. and I take coffee out to the porch, where we plan to wait for his wife. The sky is clear, but it's cold enough, so we're wearing our sweaters and jackets. She asked me if she should bring the kids, J.P. says. I told her she should keep the kids at home. Can you imagine? My God, I don't want my kids up here. We use a coal bucket for an ashtray. We look across the valley to where Jack London used to live. We're drinking more coffee when this car turns off the road and comes down the drive. That's her, J.P. says. He puts his cup next to his chair. He gets up and goes down the steps to the drive. I see this woman stop the car and set the brake. I see J.P. open the car door. I watch her get out, and I see them embrace. They hug each other. I look away. Then I look back. J.P. takes the woman's arm, and they come up the stairs. This woman has crawled into chimneys. This woman broke a man's nose once. She has had two kids and much trouble, but she loves this man who has her by the arm. I get up from the chair. This is my friend, J.P. says to his wife. Hey, this is Roxy. Roxy takes my hand. She's a tall, good-looking woman in a blue knit cap. She has on a coat, a heavy white sweater, and dark slacks. I recall what J.P. told me about the boyfriend and the wire cutters, all that, and I glance at her hands. Right. I don't see any wedding ring. That's in pieces somewhere. Her hands are broad, and the fingers have these big knuckles. This is a woman who can make fists if she has to. I've heard about you, I say. J.P. told me how you got acquainted. Something about a chimney, J.P. said. Yes, a chimney, she says. Her eyes move away from my face, then return. She nods. She's anxious to be alone with J.P., which I can understand, There's probably a lot else he didn't tell you, she says. I bet he didn't tell you everything, she says, and laughs. Then, she can't wait any longer. She slips her arm around J.P.'s waist and kisses him on the cheek. They start to move toward the door. Nice meeting you, she says over her shoulder. Hey, did he tell you he's the best sweep in the business? She lets her hand slide down from J.P.'s waist onto his hip. Come on now, Roxy, J.P. says. He has his hand on the doorknob. He told me he learned everything he knew from you, I say. Well, that much is sure true, she says. She laughs again. But it's as if she's thinking about something else. J.P. turns the doorknob. Roxy lays her hand over his hand. Joe... Can't we go into town for lunch? Can't I take you someplace for lunch? J.P. clears his throat. He says, It hasn't been a week yet. He takes his hand off the doorknob and brings his fingers to his chin. I think they'd like it, you know, if I didn't leave the place for a little while yet. We can have some coffee inside, he says. That's fine, she says. Her eyes light on me once more. I'm glad Joe's made a friend here. Nice to meet you, she says again. They start to go inside. I know it's a foolish thing to do, but I do it anyway. Roxy, I say, and they stop in the doorway and look at me. I need some luck, I say. No kidding. I could do with a kiss myself. JP looks down. He's still holding the doorknob even though the door is open. He turns the doorknob back and forth. He's embarrassed. I'm embarrassed, too. But I keep looking at her. Roxy doesn't know what to make of it. She grins. I'm not a sweep anymore, she says. Not for years. Didn't Joe tell you? What the hell? Sure, I'll kiss you. Sure. For luck. She moves over. She takes me by the shoulders. I'm a big man. And she plants this kiss on my lips. How's that, she says. That's fine, I say. Nothing to it, she says. She's still holding me by the shoulders. She's looking me right in the eyes. Good luck, she says. And then she lets go of me. See you later, pal, J.P. says. He opens the door all the way, and they go inside. I sit down on the front steps and light a cigarette. I watch what my hand does, then I blow out the match. I've got a case of the shakes. I started out with them this morning. This morning I wanted something to drink. It's depressing, and I didn't say anything about it to JP. I try to put my mind on something else, and for once, it works. I'm thinking about chimney sweeps all that stuff i heard from jp when for some reason i start to think about the house my wife and i lived in just after we were married that house didn't have a chimney hell no so i don't know what makes me remember it now but i remember the house and how we'd only been in there a few weeks when we heard a noise outside one morning and woke up it was sunday morning and so early it was still dark in the bedroom but there was this pale light coming in from the bedroom window. I listened. I could hear something scrape against the side of the house. I jumped out of bed and went to the window. My God, my wife says, sitting up in bed and shaking the hair away from her face. Then she starts to laugh. It's Mr. Venturini, she says, the landlord. I forgot to tell you. He said he was coming to paint the house early today, before it gets too hot. I forgot all about it, she says, and laughs some more. Come on back to bed, honey. It's just the landlord. In a minute, I say. I push the curtain away from the window. Outside, this old guy in white coveralls is standing next to his ladder. The sun is just starting to break above the mountains. The old guy and I look each other over. It's the landlord, all right, this old guy in coveralls. But his coveralls are too big for him. He needs a shave, too. And he's wearing this baseball cap to cover his bald head. God damn it, I think. If he isn't a weird old hombre, then I've never seen one. And at that minute, a wave of happiness comes over me. That I'm not him. That I'm me. And that I'm inside this bedroom with my wife. He jerks his thumb toward the sun. He pretends to wipe his forehead. He's letting me know he doesn't have all that much time. The old duffer breaks into a grin. It's then I realize I'm naked. I look down at myself. I look at him again and shrug. I'm smiling. What did he expect? My wife laughs. Come on, she says. Get back in this bed. Right now, this minute. Come on, back to bed. I let go of the curtain, but I keep standing there at the window. I can see the landlord nod to himself as if to say, Go on, sonny. Go back to bed. I understand. As if he'd heard my wife calling me. He tugs the bill of his cap. Then he sets about his business. He picks up his bucket. He starts climbing the ladder. I lean back into the step behind me now and cross one leg over the other. Maybe later this afternoon I'll try calling my wife again and then I'll call to see what's happening with my girlfriend. But I don't want to get her mouthy son on the line. If I do call, I hope he'll be out somewhere doing whatever he does when he's not hanging around the house. I try to remember if I ever read any Jack London books. I can't remember. But there was a story of his I read in high school. To build a fire, it was called. This guy in the Yukon is freezing. Imagine it. He's actually going to freeze to death if he can't get a fire going. With a fire, he can dry his socks and clothing and warm himself. He gets his fire going. But then something happens to it. A branch full of snow drops on it. It goes out. Meanwhile, the temperature is falling. Night is coming on. I bring some change out of my pocket. I'll try my wife first. If she answers, I'll wish her a Happy New Year. But that's it. I won't bring up business. I won't raise my voice, not even if she starts something. She'll ask me where I'm calling from, and I'll have to tell her. I won't say anything about New Year's resolutions. There's no way to make a joke out of this. After I talk to her, I'll call my girlfriend. Maybe I'll call her first. I'll just have to hope I don't get her son on the line. Hello, sugar, I'll say when she answers. It's me.
0: That was Sherman Alexi, reading Where I'm Calling From by Raymond Carver. The story appeared in The New Yorker in March of 1982 and was included in the collection Cathedral, which was published by Knopf in 1983. Hi, I'm Deborah Treesman, fiction editor of The New Yorker. Each week on the Writer's Voice podcast, New Yorker fiction writers read their newly published stories from the magazine. You can hear from authors like Colson Whitehead,
1: Turner nudged Elwood, who had a look of horror on his face. They saw it. Griff wasn't going down. He was going to go for it, no matter what happened after.
0: Or Joy Williams. Her father was silent. Slowly, he passed his hand over his hair. This usually meant that he was traveling to a place immune to her presence, a place that indeed contradicted her presence. She might as well go to lunch. Listen to news stories or dive into our archive of great fiction. You can find the work of your favorite fiction writers and discover new ones. Listen and follow The Writer's Voice wherever you get your podcasts.
2: The questions around retirement have gotten... tiring. Instead of, have you saved up enough? Shouldn't they be asking, what is it that you love to do? And how can we help you keep doing it? The truth is, you're not slowing down. Lincoln Financial Group, marketing name for Lincoln National Corporation and its insurance companies and broker-slash-dealer-affiliate Lincoln Financial Distributors, Inc. Copyright 2024, Lincoln National Corporation.
0: So, Sherman, the story has a slightly unusual construction, right? It's told by a first-person narrator. But for long stretches of it, what we get are stories about other people, one of them also told in the first person, in a sense, by J.P., and we don't learn as much about the narrator as we learn about the other people, in a way. Why, why do you think that is?
1: It's a question I've been asking myself, too. <laughs> I think I have the answer. Okay. This story replicates a 12-step meeting where you listen to people tell their stories, and you don't interrupt. You listen and you encourage people to tell their stories about their battles to recovery and their battles, period. It's the same conversations, the same patterns, the same rhythms that are going to occur when they're sitting in a circle in a room there at the house.
0: Right. We get that when we get the introduction of J.P., it says he's first and foremost a drunk. Yeah. Right. He's also a chimney sweep. But this is when <laughs> it's that I am J.P. and I'm an alcoholic you know, then, introduction.
1: But he's also a chimney. That's that might be my favorite third sentence in all of literature. <laughs> but he's also a chimney sweep. So you know you're at a rehab in the 80s or whenever the story is set, and then you're in the Charles Dickens novel. And the incongruity, I love.
0: Yeah. Well, so we get this story from J.P., which our narrator is really just listening to, sometimes commenting on. But every time J.P. tries to take a break or stop, he says, come on, man, keep going, you know. But he also says the guy could be talking about pitching horseshoes, and he still would want him to keep talking. And so you get the sense of what he's looking for is not this story, but distraction from his own story. Is that how you read it?
1: Yeah. Sitting there in rehab, all you do is think about yourself. And there's a lot of quiet. There's a lot of solitude. And your mind's going to eat at you. And the guilt and shame are going to roar at you. So to have somebody else's voice in place of yours in your head, I'm sure that's a big comfort, a big distraction. And it helps him get through the long days. And J.P.'s stories are also amazing. <laughs>
0: yeah. yeah. Well, we start with actually not with Roxy in the chimney sweep business, but we start with him falling down a well.
1: Which uh, I remembered when I was in rehab the second time, one of the visions I kept having was the kid me was at the bottom of the well and I was looking up at the adult me. Mm-hmm. So I read it and I thought, whoa. Did Carver come to me in <laughs> 2017? Uh, but, I mean, that's incredible to be trapped at the bottom of that well as a kid. And the blue sky so close and yet so far. And that line about the bird's wing beats changing who he was. The terrible poetry of that story. You think about childhood trauma leading to addiction. and And, I mean, the guy was doomed.
0: Yeah, yeah. What interests me is that by becoming a chimney sweep, in a way, he's replicating that moment. He's at the bottom of something round looking up at the sky.
2: Wow. Or maybe
0: taking control over it or finding his way up.
1: That did not occur to me. Wow. (laughs) Wow. Yes, I think you're right. And it's also about trying to find love, too. I mean, because a mom doesn't get mentioned. Does JP's mom get mentioned? Only his dad. He's going into this chimney looking up at the sky again, but it's because of a woman, a maternal figure, a female figure. So some connections are being made for him.
0: It's interesting how I thought of this just now. You know, our narrator is in there with the girlfriend and the wife. Roxy's out there. She's got the boyfriend and the husband. She, in a way, is mirroring the narrator
1: (laughs) with this sort of triangle. People are messy. (laughs) You know, it occurs to me in a lot of fiction lately, the narrators are more and more heroic. Mm -hmm. Like they're at the center of all this storm of politics and culture and this and that. And they end up being pretty flawless or their flaws are cute. Mm -hmm. It's like watching a celebrity with mental illness (laughs) talking about it. You know, there's a kind of dishevelment we can admire. Uh, mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. and fiction's been doing that lately, and this story doesn't do that.
0: Right. Everybody's right.
1: disheveled. Their narrator here is no hero. He's just an ordinary, broken guy, and they're all doing their best, and they're looking for love, and they're finding it in multiple people.
0: Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh,
1: there's so much loss for all of them, and they're trying to fill it in, and yeah. their romantic partners are doing the same thing, so... Uh, We'd like to think of somebody as being the villain here, but nobody is. They're all trying.
0: Yeah. Well, interesting when you talk about how they're not heroes because we get a counterexample, which is Frank Martin coming out and saying, Jack London, better man than all of us, and even he couldn't beat alcohol. Why do you think... Frank Martin comes out and starts going on about Jack London. (laughs) Why are we getting Call of the Wild in the middle of this, you know, slightly touching scene of confessions on the porch?
1: I think Frank Martin has a spiel. (laughs) I think he's very experienced at telling stories. And it's also his romanticism, too. To have that job, to be the person in charge of a rehab facility, you got to be a romantic to some degree. And it's serving men. So there's this masculine romance. Yeah. And who else are you going to read for masculine romance (laughs) than Jack London?
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, Jack London comes back again at the end when um, the narrator thinks about to build a fire. What do you get out of that story? I mean, it's about a man who's dying. He knows he has to build a fire to survive. He struggles and struggles. He builds it and then some snow plops off a branch and puts it out. Is that supposed to be a cautionary tale? Is that supposed to tell us something about what's going to happen to the narrator? Why do we get that?
1: Yeah, that callback is beautiful. I mean, it comes back and you're sort of like, oh, of course. And then he doesn't talk about Call of the Wild. He brings in a news story, which is great. (laughs) And which is not heroic. I mean, Call of the Wild is a heroic story, but to build a fire is not. To build a fire is desperate and scary. Yeah. So I think that story brings in more reality than Call of the Wild does. And the reality is that staying sober is building a fire in a snowstorm. Yeah. And he's scared. I mean, he's really terrified. And I think that's what that story, Build the Fire, is about, is about how scared he is. And it just occurred to me again, one of my main characters is called Thomas Builds the Fire. (laughs) <laughs> of my whole writing career. Right? Now I'm very curious whether something else from Carver made its way into my work. <laughs> <laughs> I love old drunks.
0: <laughs> Let's talk about now about Roxy and that kiss. So I feel as our narrator has been sitting there through the whole story trying to keep JP talking and not to think about himself. And then suddenly this woman actually arrives and she's present and it's not a story anymore. And he wants to connect with her. Well, I think what he sees is that she still loves J.P., Yeah. right? Despite everything, she's tender with him. And he wants a piece of that really badly, and he doesn't know where to get it. I mean, Roxy is not the person for him to get it from, but he tries it.
1: it yeah, <laughs> he's, he's looking for it. Uh, you know, when J.P. talks about meeting her and this woman said his legs to tremble, Yeah. I think that's even more clear when she comes in through narrator's eyes when he's talking about her height right. and her hands. Mm-hmm. It was, when I read that, I thought it's amazing that he just turned her hands into a prize fighter's hands, right. and it's really sensual.
0: <laughs> Those hands had broken JP's nose, nose you know? Oh, yeah, and it,
1: you're like, whoa, how did you do that, Carver? So I think the combination of her beauty, as they describe it, and then her job and her strength, this gale force of a person, and then she's so tender. Yeah. So very tender, touching him, kissing mm-hmm. him, very polite to the narrator. I mean, he got dropped off by his girlfriend and they were drunk with uneaten fried chicken. Right. So not exactly yeah. the same sort of entrance that Roxy made.
0: Yeah. But seeing Roxy does make him want to reach out. Yes. To and his wife and his
1: girlfriend. And his girlfriend.
0: <laughs> I mean, he wants to find someone who cares about him, I, I'm sure. But. He's avoided it up until now, and perhaps partly that's because last time he talked to his wife, she screamed at him. And the last time he saw uh, his girlfriend, she had gotten bad medical news. Yeah. But, but at the same time, he does call. He calls the wife. She doesn't answer. And he does plan what he's going to say to the girlfriend. <laughs> um, so you think he's going to make these calls, and maybe that's his fire he's building?
1: Yeah. Yeah. And then that's where the title of the story comes from, where I'm right. calling from. Yeah. yeah, And it's a physical place, sure, but it's more than that. And he's calling from a place of hope that there is going to be a connection, Right. That, that the snow won't fall on the fire, that he's going to rekindle something with one or both of them. I don't know.
0: Right. He's also calling for help, I guess. He's calling from the bottom of that well, right? Yeah, yeah. The other thing that happens at the end, he thinks of the Jack London story, but he also is taken back to a memory from the early days of his marriage. Why that memory?
1: Because it's fun and sexy and unexpected, and it's beautiful. You know, I I had to reread it a couple times because I almost burst into laughter (laughs) when he looks down and realizes he's naked. Right, and I mean, it's hilarious. It really is a slapstick moment, and it, it feels so positive, so loving, and his wife is so, come back to bed, come back to bed. You know, it's a callback to bed. It's a callback to a much better time, a good memory in his marriage. Maybe it's a reminder there is something good in his marriage. There is something in him that was a good husband, and she was a good wife.
0: They had a connection. I mean, it's interesting that he's, you know, standing there in the middle of that wonderful marriage, looking out the window at this lonely old guy this weird hombre, you know, (laughs) who's out there. And now, of course, he's the guy on the outside, right? He's the guy sitting on the porch with his aching joints, getting up like an old geezer.
1: And and nobody wants to be him. Nobody wants to be him. Uh, Nobody would drive by that and see those guys on the porch and think, I want to be them.
0: Yeah, you know, he's been relocated in this story. He's now the guy on the outside.
1: (laughs) Yeah, alone and just completely disheveled.
0: We never know what went wrong. We never hear any background, really.
1: Nothing. And it keeps us aching for more. Right. So it is sort of a mystery. Yeah, why is he a drunk? He doesn't want to talk about it. He doesn't want to tell us. When are we finally going to hear something from him that is about him rather than him listening or repeating? And then it comes down to... Standing naked in the window while yeah. his wife calls him back to bed. That's the first time when we learn something about him. And it's, as I'm talking about it now, it's really tender. Yeah. You know, as an alcoholic addict looking back at when things were good, if I could only go back to that. Right. The before when it was better.
0: Yeah. And so his instinct is to make those phone calls. And that is going back. But maybe it it's also going forward? <laughs>
1: Well, you know, one of the things in rehab is you try to stay away from your friends that you ever drank with. (laughs) Right. So in reading it, I also think, oh, I don't know.
0: Don't go back there. right? Don't
1: go back there. Try to go find something new.
0: Right. So I read it as a more hopeful story than you do. (laughs) Perhaps. (laughs) You you see it as as like the next step is relapse.
1: Yeah, well, because I also think about JP and Roxy. I mean. Yeah. He dislocated her arm. She broke his nose. That's not the kind of marriage that's going to survive without some serious intervention and counseling, and it doesn't seem like they're the kind to go for that.
0: Yeah. I mean, we get two other stories. We get Tiny, who is so looking forward to New Year's with his wife, eating cookies, and then is just a broken, depressed person after the seizure. And we get the guy who's so completely in denial, he's asking for contacts in Egypt. (laughs) Um, Why are those two in the story?
1: Well, again, this is where you know Carver didn't need to do any research.
0: (laughs) (laughs) You think he met these guys?
1: (laughs) Yeah, I mean, you know, as a person who's in these meetings and been in rehab, I'm very careful that nobody I would ever write about would even be remotely resembling anybody real I don't feel that's the case here. <laughs> I feel like different Harvard, times. <laughs> yeah, I feel like Carver definitely crossed the anonymous line. Uh, you know, I think there was a tiny, and I think there was a a, a a exaggerator liar. I don't think that guy had a name. The guy who travels no, the guy the, who travels the guy who travels, uh, yeah. so, but there are also aspects of the personalities of anybody. I mean, the liar, the guy who travels, that's an addict behavior. Mm -hmm. Uh, and then the physical, the seizures, and being afraid of your health. You know, I was never uh, drunk enough to have the shakes or the snakes, the DTs, the detoxing, but my dad did. So I remember when my dad was detoxing once, and he thought there were Nazis coming out of his bedroom walls, and he talked about that the rest of his life. He would bring it up randomly. So when you're drinking that much, you're always so close to death. And then for everybody in that room, one that happened to be so vividly reminded of how close to death they all are, Tiny is the serious warning story.
0: There's one other reason why I feel like the ending is more hopeful than maybe you feel it is. (laughs) (laughs) And that's because this guy has spent the whole story talking about other people and avoiding his own story and avoiding thinking about himself and dealing with this situation, avoiding hearing what's going on with his girlfriend's health and so on. And yet, at the very end, what he wants to say on the phone is, Hi, sugar, it's me. It's me, right? He's taking some kind of ownership of who he is and where he's calling from, I suppose.
1: Yeah. That, hey, sugar, is... <laughs> no, I mean, that's... that's... <sighs> then what popped into my head, too, is another recovery term called pink clouding where in the early days of recovery you think you've got it solved right so when my head popped into there was hey sugar sounds like pink clouding <laughs> to me <laughs> right <laughs> so i right. think i think it's i mean you carry around these suspicions about yourself and the guilt and the shame and everything piles up and you don't even uh, i think perhaps i identify with him too strongly <laughs> <laughs>
0: Maybe you, maybe you picked the wrong story to read. <laughs> I, I think you've I've now picked picked inhabited perf- it.
1: <laughs> I picked the perfect one. <laughs> so, But I agree with you. I, I can see that there's hope there, that he's reaching out for a connection. And also what popped into my head is you're trying to repair your life. And that's also part of recovery, to reach out to the people you've harmed.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's Frank Martin who makes a thing out of saying you know first to the wife and then to the narrator directly you have to ask for help you have to want help yeah and i suppose maybe at the end he's asking for help right
1: yeah and maybe they're not the ones to help but he's making the gesture he's looking for it
0: well i do take hope from the fact that it was written by a much better carver who was no longer calling from there
1: yeah Um, i mean you know, as you, you said that, I thought you know that that's also a past tense. I mm-hmm. mean, in the story, it's where I'm calling from, and and as a writer, as a person, Carver was where I was calling from, and so yes, as a writer, as a person, I think this is a very positive step for Carver, and I think it's a very positive step for the reader. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so maybe you're right.
0: <laughs> <laughs> but actually, you just brought up a point that's interesting to me, which is the story wavers between present tense and past tense. Constantly, like one sentence after another, he switches tenses. There's someone telling a story and there's someone living a story. And they are both happening at the same time.
1: Yeah, there's even that moment I was reading it. There's that moment when he's remembering being naked in the window. And then he talks about leaning back. And there's a moment of confusion there. Yeah wait, he's leaning back naked from the window or leaning back in the present day? And it's in the present day. Yeah. But you're not sure as the sentence is happening. It's only when the next sentence pops up that you realize he has transitioned back. And that's the only unclear one. Yeah. Which, as we're talking about it, is very interesting that that's the only unclear one. Wow. I mean, the guilt and shame of being an alcoholic and what he's done in his life, you're always doing the autopsy of yourself the inventory and, yeah. and uh, I, I think that's what's going on for him and then he gets to that moment and wow so is he bringing something beautiful from the past into the present maybe that accounts for the blurring
0: mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
1: that he made a positive step there
0: there you go and he leans back into the step yes <laughs> literally <laughs> yeah you're working hard on me here Debra
1: Sherman this is a happy story <laughs>
0: I know, I just keep trying, I want to have some hope for these guys
1: <laughs> and and I do, I do because <laughs> uh, it works if you work it.
0: <laughs> well, thank you so much.
1: Well, thank you, Deborah.
0: Raymond Carver, who died at age 50 in 1988, was the author of more than a dozen books of poetry and fiction, including the story collections, Will You Please Be Quiet, Please?, What We Talk About When We Talk About Love?, and Cathedral. Sherman Alexie's works of fiction include The Absolutely True Diary of a Part-Time Indian, which won the National Book Award for Young People's Literature, The Toughest Indian in the World, and War Dances, which won the Penn Faulkner Award for Fiction. You can download more than 170 previous episodes of the New Yorker Fiction Podcast, or subscribe to the podcast for free in Apple Podcasts. On the Writer's Voice podcast, you can hear short stories from the magazine read by their authors. You can find the Writer's Voice and other New Yorker podcasts on your podcast app. Tell us what you thought of this program on our Facebook page, or rate and review us in Apple Podcasts. The New Yorker Fiction Podcast is produced by Michelle Moses. I'm Deborah Treisman. Thanks for listening.